The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Catherine Pompilio, Associate Editor of Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for January 7, 2023. Yesterday marked the two-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, at which Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building to attempt to stop the certification of electoral college votes for the 2020 presidential election. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from January 6, 2021, in which Benjamin Wittes, Quinta Jurassic, David Priest, Georgetown's Mary McCord, who used to run the National Security Division at the Justice Department, and Daniel Byman, professor at Georgetown and Lawfare's foreign policy editor, sat down just hours after the attack to discuss their initial thoughts and reaction. When listening, remember that the discussion and analysis of the events are largely reactionary and contemporaneous. We have learned a great deal about the causes, events, and impact of that day in the two years since the attack, so the opinions and analysis offered in this podcast may not reflect the views of the guests today. Their takes, however, do serve as a reminder of the chaos and utter confusion felt that day, and present an opportunity for listeners to reflect on the events and aftermath of the attack. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 7th, 2021. It's been a long time since we've had a bona fide emergency podcast, but boy, uh, does today uh, require one. As you all know, a mob of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol today following a rally to which the president spoke Congressional efforts to count the electoral votes were suspended, and an armed standoff in which at least one person was killed ensued. We have a impromptu group of people to discuss the matter in the virtual jungle studio. Lawfare managing editor Quinta Jurassic, David Priest, our chief operating officer, Georgetown's Mary McCord, who used to run the National Security Division at the Justice Department, and Daniel Byman of Georgetown, who is also Lawfare's foreign policy editor. Quinta, let's start with you. Give us a summary to the best that we can discern of what happened today. Sure. So to begin with, I should say we're recording this around 6.30 p.m. on Wednesday, um, I mentioned that because the situation has been pretty fluid. But what the day so far has looked like is Congress, as was expected, assembled to count the electoral votes at 1 p.m. today. Um, and the two chambers split into their respective chambers once uh, Senator Ted Cruz and Representative Paul Gosar contested the counting of Arizona's electoral votes, as they'd indicated they were planning to do. Um, once the two chambers split up, about an hour later, I believe, at around 2.15, a number of Trump supporters who had gathered outside the Capitol began trying to get into the building itself, rushed past some barriers that had been put up by, I believe, the Capitol Police, and somehow managed to successfully break into the building. There are some pretty astonishing photos and video from reporters of a mob of white uh, Trump supporters basically chasing a black policeman around the Capitol building 
and trying to get into the Senate and House chambers. Uh, Shots were fired. We know uh, one person who I believe has so far, it seems to be, was among the people who were trying to rush into the Capitol, um, was shot and appears to have died. As of now, so again, around 6.30, a number of different federal law enforcement agencies have assembled to help out the Capitol Police. So the D.C. National Guard has been called up, uh, National Guard from Virginia, um, I believe New Jersey, and also some other states is on the way to assist. DHS and the FBI are also sending agents to help get things under control. The last I saw... Uh, Law enforcement announced that the Capitol building itself had been cleared, um, and recently Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi announced that Congress intends to reassemble in the building tonight after all of the various members of Congress were were taken to secure locations after the raid. So that's kind of where things stand right now. There are a lot of different (laughs) angles to this. I think the one that jumps out to me immediately is as I kind of hinted at, the really astonishing failure of law enforcement to prevent this from happening and to respond once the Capitol was breached. All right. I want to foot stomp that point with you, Mary. This was an announced event. The people in question were all over social media saying they were going to stop the steal and storm the Capitol. There was no secret this was going to happen. Uh, The Capitol Police is probably one of the largest police forces in the country in terms of the number of square feet that it has to monitor. How the heck was this allowed to happen? Well, that's a question that I'm sure is going to be the subject of some very serious uh, after-action reporting. You're right. I mean, we've seen this coming. These were announced events. They were permitted events. I mean, to the extent that the Capitol Police at any point might have thought that the activity would be confined to Freedom Plaza or the Washington Monument or the White House or Black Lives Matter Plaza or what have you, uh, the more recent reporting openly on social media was that there was an intent to surround the Capitol. And and there were there were even color-coded areas around the Capitol where different contingencies from different areas of the country were supposed to be. So it is, uh, I know from some of conversations I've had with law enforcement in D.C. that certainly MPD was really, really gearing up and very, very conscious of the intelligence that they had. Uh, in order to prepare. And, you know, they typically work with all of the other law enforcement within D.C., you know, such an interesting jurisdiction because there are so many overlapping um, law enforcement agencies, both federal and local, um, that operate and have different jurisdictions within the city. So I, I really can't explain why the Capitol Police were so unprepared. They clearly were there. They clearly, you know, had more people out. But they were not at all ready for the volume of people or the unruliness of the crowd. One thing I would add to that is that it could be, I don't know this, is pure speculation on my part, but it could be that the Capitol Police thought, okay, there've been two previous events, December 12th, November 14th, you know, Million MAGA March and other very uh, Stop the Steal related activities, which included protests around the Capitol and didn't result in this type of assault on federal buildings that we saw today. And it could be that the assessment of the Capitol Police was that this would be something of the same, that these are, and I'm going to put these in air quotes that no one can see on a podcast, these are people who call themselves patriots, quote unquote, and that they have, even though they believe the election was stolen, they have respect for government. There are Republicans in this Capitol building at this time, and they wouldn't want to in you know, endanger their safety. And perhaps they just underestimated this crowd. But if you were watching the social media, and I and I get give you that social media rhetoric can be really bombastic and hyperbolic and rarely does it convert into what happens on the ground. We also saw that the logistics in the last week showed that many people weren't just talking on the internet. They weren't just engaging in bombastic rhetoric. They intended to be here and they intended to, in some cases, conceal uh, weapons and smuggle them in because they're, of course, illegal in D.C. without a concealed carry permit, which is only available 
for uh, DC concealed carry permits. They don't recognize other permits. There's no open carrying. There's been all this planning that was well known. So, you know, I can only speculate where the breakdown occurred. So while Mary was speaking, I looked up the uh, relative size of the Capitol Police to the larger uh, Metropolitan Police Force of the district. Uh, so the District of Columbia, you know, is a 68 square mile district that has 3,800 officers. The Capitol Police Force, you know, covers a few square blocks. Uh, it's literally covers the grounds of the Capitol and nothing else. And it has 2,200 officers. You know, I think of it as the most densely policed place in the United States. And I'm amazed that, like, I, I take what what you say, Mary, as as a given. And yet I'm amazed. It's You don't have to be, like, trolling the social media to see it. They were telling the Washington Post they were going to do this. You know, it's like even the president, when he was speaking to them moments before, he said, you're going to march on the Capitol. Like there was no secret that this is what they were going to do. No, that you're absolutely right. And I don't know, and I don't know if anybody um, participating tonight has seen whether, you know, whether they had the entire force deployed or some, or how many they even had deployed. I mean, I certainly know that, you know, NPD was all hands on deck and I'm sure other law enforcement were the same. All right, Dan, uh, this is a great segue to a subject that you've been spending some quality time on recently, which is who the heck are these people? So the average supporter of the president is not storming the Capitol today. On the other hand, there were a lot of people there. There are people who the president does not run away from their support. He came and spoke to them, even in telling them to go home. He said how much he loves them, how they're great Americans, etc. And, you know, there's a tendency in uh, liberal circles to talk about them as though they're all sort of proud boys and white supremacists. Uh, is that right? And to the extent that there's a mix of people here, what does the mix consist of in your estimation? So I'll stress the we don't know aspect of a lot of the specifics. And in particular, the we don't know who the particular people were who breached the Capitol in that, you know, the the main crowd could be composed of, you know, several groups, while the individuals who went to the Capitol could be one strand within that. The broader kind of, I'll say, extreme MAGA movement is a mix of people with views you could range from kind of populism and nationalism, if you want to use nice words. Um, you could talk about white supremacy, uh, violent anti-government views, or at least harsh anti-government views. And then to throw a lot of that um, really make it difficult for, for analysts and the rest of us is that there's a lot of uh, people with deep views on conspiracy here. And it's all kind of an uneasy medley. And occasionally you have pretty organized groups, but it's a lot more like different movements within a broader umbrella. And as your question indicates, there's you know going to be a range within that. There is certainly you know a lot of the people descending based on kind of the flags and the um, signs they're carrying were very much part of this anti-government kind of broader movement that, you know, we could talk about the three percenters, we could talk about Proud Boys, people who are very hostile to uh, government and who have seen uh, Trump as an ally. And uh, they're very enmeshed in the broader conspiracy world. And, and let's be clear, you know, the president of the United States is saying there is a conspiracy, right? So it's not as if they're this crazy extreme set of people who believe something that only 1% of America believes. You know, the president of the United States, in a normal time, I would say that would be a reasonable source of news, is saying there was a stolen election. So they're getting broad mainstream support from a number of Republican leaders, from a good chunk of the Republican Party, to kind of fan the flames. And then there's this broader media ecosystem, and then people pumping each other up. Uh, so I would love to give you kind of a rough proportion of who belongs to which group or movement or belief system. The answer, honestly, is I don't know. And as I said, I'm a little nervous about uh, jumping to too much judgment as to who broke through. But I suspect, you know, this is part of what makes mobs so unpredictable and dangerous, right? Which is you can have a few individuals who are pushing hard and they succeeded and that encouraged others in a way that had those few individuals failed, 
no one else will have done anything. It doesn't have to be this kind of massively orchestrated plot in the end to push through the barricades. It could have just been a few people who tried their luck and it worked for them. Quinta, you spend in a very different way from Dan, you spend a lot of quality time with really nasty people in social media. How do you understand who this group was? Well, I, I should say Dan Dan has a much better sense of this than than I do. Look, I mean, I think it's it's a motley group of people, right? It's as Dan says, there's not any clear one sort of leading voice. What really does strike me about it is how I think it's obviously right that you know the the rioters who are trying to storm the Capitol are not the majority of people who voted for Donald Trump. But I also think it's important to recognize that look, you know, they might be closer to a significant portion of people who would call themselves mainstream Republicans than is comfortable to really think about. Um, there's been some reporting from reporters who were on the ground in Georgia recently. I'm thinking of Dave Weigel at the Washington Post and Nisted Herndon at the New York Times tweeting that, you know, among the many, many, many Republican voters they spoke to about the Georgia runoff, any number of those voters told them, you know, that they didn't believe that Biden had really been elected, that there was widespread voter fraud, that they there is a need to stop the steal. That doesn't mean, of course, that all of those people went and stormed the Capitol. In fact, I think that the number of people in the Capitol is actually relatively small, which is one of the reasons why the law enforcement failure is so astonishing. But it's really what I really want to do is just footstop Dan's point that this is a group that seems to be voicing fringe ideas, but those ideas in many cases are being reflected back from prominent voices in right-wing media. And that, I think, is really concerning. All right, David, we've got about five issues that I want to talk to you about here. But I want to start, so for readers, uh, listeners who have not read David's book, David wrote a book about how to get rid of a president. You kind of can't imagine how many ways that book is relevant to this discussion. Uh, so we're going to be referring to it a lot. And one aspect of it, the first is, of course, that the procedure that the storming of the Capitol interrupted was a procedure associated with a procedure to count the electoral votes, which is, of course, one way that we get rid of presidents. And, of course, the reason that the uh, protesters or mob members uh wanted to interrupt this procedure is that it will have the effect of getting rid of President Trump, but they actually did succeed in stopping it. And so my question to start, David, is like Congress actually needs to reconvene and start this thing again, right? Like, yes, you have to stop. Yes. I'm glad you brought this up because among many things that have frustrated me today, and the list is is long, and this is by no means the most frustrating by far, but among them are uh, everybody tweeting things of, well, the president has already been removed from office, so you don't need to worry about other steps because he's out the door. Well, those are two different things. Yes, the voters have removed him from office, but by our constitution, he is the president until noon on January 20th. He has not yet been removed. The action of voting him out only takes effect on January 20th, at which time he is removed. But as we have seen, the damage a president can do in any given month, week, day, hour is, is grave. So Congress must reconvene. And the, the news I'm seeing is that they do plan to reconvene tonight to resume the counting of the electoral vote. So per the podcast that uh, just came out within the last couple of days here on Lawfare, yes, technically by the Electoral College meeting in December and the votes uh, not being challenged by the states that submitted them, the president is done and Vice President Biden is now President-elect Biden. That is all true. Donald Trump holds the powers and duties of the office until January 20th. And to ensure that that process goes forward, Congress must meet to count the electoral votes and complete that process. 
All right. So, Dan, did you just tell me that Chuck Schumer has announced that they will be reconvening at eight? That's what I saw on Twitter. So take it for what it's worth. (laughs) So, but it's fair to say that we expect, David, this process to begin again this evening and that the Capitol has been sufficiently cleared to do that. It has been announced that the Capitol has been cleared. What has not been announced is how much damage was done. You may have seen some of the footage, uh, some video, others photographic, some of it being posted by the insurrectionists themselves claiming victory and putting up pictures in members' offices and at the dais in the chamber itself. What we don't know is how much damage has been done And will they physically be able to meet there? If Schumer issued that statement, and I will take that to be true unless shown otherwise, that must mean that he has some assurance that the facility is is suitable for procedures to continue. Now, we shouldn't fool ourselves. We have many very robust contingency plans, which I used to be involved in back in the day when I was working in government, for continuity of government. And if Congress needs to meet to do anything such as, for the purposes of the conversation at this point, count the ballots of the electoral votes, they can do that in a secure facility within a matter of hours and even minutes. So even if the Capitol building is sufficiently damaged that they feel they can't meet safely, they would be able to meet and to complete the process that they have begun. All right. So let us assume for purposes of podcast conversational flow that the mob has been sufficiently put down for present purposes to allow the capital to resume use, if not normal use, at least use use for present purposes. Uh, We then have a significant law enforcement question on our hands. Mary, if I were the incoming attorney general say my name were Merrick Garland, or the person who's going to end up being acting attorney general, I would be very interested in all of the footage of all of the individuals, you know, basically that all the networks took, that's all that's available of what happened today, because there are a lot of faces. And this sure looks to me like there's a a target rich environment in terms of the federal statutes that are available here. So you ran the national security division. What are the conversations in federal law enforcement going on like tonight? Well, right now they're probably mostly, you know, very much working in the moment. And even though the Capitol has been cleared and even though there's a curfew, as we've been doing this podcast, my emails and my signal feeds have been lighting up with uh, new reporting of people who intend to break curfew, people who intend to try to get back into the city armed, et cetera. So at this moment, law enforcement, I hope and believe is still very much uh, in a response mode. And of course, during a crisis like this, you know, whether arrests are made in the moment depends on a lot of different factors, including how the impact of that arrest in the moment might affect the crowd and those around it, and whether it might escalate things versus not escalate things. But you are absolutely right that much of what happened today is on video, many, many different types of videos. And were I still in the Department of Justice, um, whether at Maine Justice and National Security or in the U.S. Attorney's Office, in D.C., where I was for 20 years, I would be wanting to do exactly as you indicated, Ben, and I'd be wanting to really review that video. I mean, there are so many different types of crimes that are possible here. Now, obviously, if the police came upon anybody with a weapon, they probably did make arrest in the moment. So there's firearms charges. There's also you know, assault on federal officers for the assaults on the Capitol Police officer, assaults on other officers for assaults on non-federal officers. There's the the damage to the U.S. government property and, frankly, seditious conspiracy. I know we don't talk about that a lot. I know it seems sort of, you know, hyperbolic, but that is what happened today. If you read the statute, it's 18 U.S. Code, Section 2384. This is two or more persons you know, conspiring. Now, you know, you might say they're not trying to overthrow the government or destroy by force the government. But if you go further in the statute, it talks to 
by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States. Well, today, the joint session of Congress was meeting pursuant to the Electoral Count Act, a law of the United States, in order to count the votes that had been submitted, the slates of electors submitted by the states. It also applies to by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States. And of course, they actually seized uh, government property by their occupation of those government offices. So, you know, that's a that's a very serious charge and a very serious crime, uh, but it's something I would def- I would want to look into. Now, having said all of that, this is a very politically hot environment with a lot of polarization in the country and the incoming attorney general, Merrick Garland, who's an excellent jurist, an excellent lawyer, who's given his entire life to public service, I, I fully believe is being brought on into the department in order to reform the and and restore the credibility of the department, to restore the notion of not being used for political purposes and being very independent of of the White House and of and of politics more generally. And he will he and others will have to think about, you know, the impact of investigations in prosecutions, particularly into things as serious as seditious conspiracy. Obviously other types of crimes that are happening on the street, I fully expect to be prosecuted. But something as serious like that, you know, there would be a lot of discretion that would have to be considered because we are in an environment where if I were the attorney general, I would really be wanting to see what I could do to try to heal the country and bring people together. And I'm not sure that that type of investigation would do that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Dan, I want to ask you a political question. If I were Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley, and I had woken up this morning, thought there was going to be angry protests outside while I did the angry protest inside, I would be pretty rocked back on my heels by this. And if I were Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, I would be really inclined to go on the offensive here and bring the sort of the internal insurgency to a close by sort of maximally laying this at the feet of the people who uh, have some ideology in common with the mob. How do you understand, I mean, I guess we'll find out in an hour when the bodies reconvene, but to what extent do you think this changes the picture of what's going on inside the chamber? I think it changes it substantially. And I'll add to it, to me, another very important event was the uh, Georgia election and the win of two Democrats in a state that I think many Republicans and I thought was theirs. And whether or not you know Trump himself is personally responsible for that loss, a number of people are blaming him and saying that his divisive politics, his incendiary rhetoric took a um, situation that was favorable to Republicans and allowed Democrats to not only win two Senate seats, but gain control of the chamber. And part of the Republican calculation has been, you know, you you talk offline to any of the members or staff, and they're almost all saying how obnoxious Trump is and how much they dislike him, but he's a winner. And by hitching their wagon to his star, many have done very well. And he's been quite clear he will go after anyone who goes against him. So they felt a political need to be tied to him. 
And when you have this sort of violence, these ugly scenes, it shows not only the risk to, I think, you know, any thinking person about um, this strategy, but it also shows the political risk. Instead of siding with real Americans against a bunch of out-of-touch elites, you're siding with very violent people who are attacking the fabric of democracy itself. And to me, this is a prime opportunity for you know, the responsible part of the Republican Party. I saw Richard Burr came out and condemned Trump, that for people to say, you know, look, it's a twofer. This is fundamentally wrong, but also it's politically devastating. We are losing out um, elections, and we're going to get worse and worse if we become a fringe party, if we go down the QAnon rabbit hole. And what's been needed is the, I'll say the kind of, I don't even know what the word moderate is right now, but that the Republican Party um, needs a group of relatively centrist Republicans to say, this is absolute nonsense. Stand up tall and stand up proud and condemn the extreme. And that will give cover for everyone else. They'll give cover um, for the media to go after it more effectively. So I think this is a potentially decisive moment. However, I will say the Republican Party has not exactly been a profile in courage in the last four years. So whether they will seize it or whether you know, um, representatives in particular, but also many senators will be too afraid of being primaried is to me a very open question. So one of the things, David, that's been kicking around all afternoon is the question of whether this should lead to a fast, quick impeachment or perhaps an invocation of the 25th Amendment. I'm curious this also is a matter that you discuss at some length in your book. Is it plausible to imagine that, you know, with 14 days left of the Trump presidency, you know, people, including some of the Republicans that Dan just referred to, are finally moved to act against him? Yeah, I'll talk about both of those methods. But yeah, the trigger is a little different now, and it certainly is enough for Twitter, because we've seen tonight that Twitter has actually done something it has been loath to do in the past, which is actually remove Donald Trump's tweets because they violate Twitter rules. One of which was, of course, his video, which most Americans by now have seen of his statement where he did say, please go home to the rioters, but used the rest of the video to claim that he had been cheated and it wasn't a landslide for him and all of this. But then similarly tweeted later that, referring to the insurrection today, that these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is so unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots, taken down. Now, when the president, even after the events of today, is sending out messages like that, that, I know, I feel like we've said this many times over the last few years, but it sure feels like that's the kind of thing that could move some representatives who had not been interested in impeaching the president for previous high crimes and misdemeanors, and senators who had been loath to convict him for said high crimes and misdemeanors, um, would now consider ample evidence of unfitness for office. And unfitness for office has a clear constitutional remedy, and that is impeachment and removal. We do have an elaborate process for doing so. We analyzed it here on Lawfare in terms of the impeachment articles and witnesses and the president's defense, and then the marching into the Senate chamber to present the articles. That's not constitutional. That's all done by the rules of the Congress. There's no reason they can't impeach and remove the president much more rapidly than the current process has laid out. If, however, the determination is made that Donald Trump is showing a manifest inability to exercise the powers and duties of the office, then the remedy is different than it is the 25th Amendment of removal for disability, and specifically Section 4, which allows the president to be removed against his will. And by removed, I mean temporarily taken out of power and held out of power by an elaborate mechanism we can get into only if you'd like. The issue there is that declaring the president unable is quite consciously by the framers of the 25th Amendment a very high bar. Brian Kalt, a professor of law at Michigan State University and lawfare contributor, has written a whole book about Section 4 
making the case that it is supposed to be hard to remove a president for something short of a coma or a very recognizable and universally acknowledged psychic break. Doing it for something like bad policy just isn't in the cards. But something may have shifted today, Ben, because today we have what sure looks like the president of the United States not using the power of the presidency to stop clear violence against the very United States government. That looks like an inability. Oh, it's much more than that. Because let's be frank about the sequence of events. The president addresses a crowd spewing allegations of these conspiracy theories and untruths. He then encourages the crowd to march on the Capitol, knowing, presumably, that the crowd's intent was to march on the Capitol and storm it, because people had been talking about that for days. They then do that. It's a little bit more, I think, which may make your point more, not less, acute, but it seems to me a little bit more than simply that he didn't stop it. I'm with you on what he did and when he did it. I'm pointing out that for the 25th Amendment, for declaring the president disabled or unable to exercise the powers and duties of the office, that is a different thing than saying he is unfit for office. I think all reasonable people would agree that the speech he gave to the crowd and inciting them to move to the Capitol was evidence of unfitness for office. Did it by itself demonstrate a disability or an inability to perform the functions of the office? That's a higher bar to to judge than his later action, which was his inability to take action under his power, and I would say under his oath, to stop the violence that then resulted against the U.S. government. So I'm totally with you that both things are abhorrent. I'm totally with you that both things warrant removal from office in any sane world. The issue is, what mechanism would you use? And the bar is actually quite high for using the disability provision of the 25th Amendment, Section 4. So I want to return to the the factual pattern of the president's conduct. But before I do, two issues have come up that I want to ask Quinta about. The first is this issue of content moderation, that Twitter actually deleted a presidential tweet, which I think is a first. The second is we referred to a series of arrests, and I was just interested, Quinta, in whether you had a sense of how many arrests there had been today. Sure. So in terms of arrests, the answer appears to be not many. NBC recently reported that as of 6 p.m., there have been 15 arrests, according to the D.C. mayor's office. I confess it's not 100 percent clear to me whether that's 15 arrests from the D.C. police department or 15 arrests across all the various law enforcement agencies involved. Um, But that's the number that we have. On content moderation, I think actually as we've been recording, the situation has gotten a little more dramatic than it was uh, when David started his answer on the matter. Um, So the Twitter safety account seven minutes ago tweeted that not only have they removed some of the president's tweets, which I believe is a first, but that I'll just read it out loud. So they've removed the tweets. This means the account of real Donald Trump will be locked for 12 hours following the removal of these tweets. If the tweets are not removed, the account will remain locked. So that's a pretty standard Twitter procedure. It was used, for example, on the New York Post's Twitter account following publication of the Hunter Biden story. And then uh, saying future violations of the Twitter rules, including our civic integrity and violent threats policies, will result in permanent suspension of the real Donald Trump account. That is a big step. It is one that Twitter has obviously been pretty hesitant to take. There have been a lot of calls for Twitter to delete the president's account before, but it hasn't. Uh, And it's sort of built in a loophole to its rules, essentially saying if something is of public interest, sort of if it's newsworthy, the usual Twitter rules that might require suspension or deletion do not apply. Um, So now uh, Twitter is basically saying 
no longer Trump has breached this policy too far. And so we're not going to allow it anymore. So there is an interesting question, I think, whether he'll Trump will leave office as president before or after he is banned permanently from Twitter. But I, I do want to emphasize in closing a point that Evelyn Dweck, who writes for Lawfare and who co-hosts uh, our Lawfare podcast series on disinformation with me, has made really eloquently, which is that whether or not you agree with what Twitter did here, and I think a lot of people do agree with it, it is hard to see this as an act of principle. It is much, much more accurate, I think, to say that this is a business decision made by a company that is reading the room and watched how Facebook, for example, also removed a video posted by Trump early today. There are a lot of things that Trump has done before now that arguably would have broken Twitter's rules such that the president's count should have been banned permanently. And I think it's very striking um, as a political matter that we're only seeing the company do so now. So, Mary, you referred to the seditious conspiracy statute, which has been very much on my mind of late. And I am interested in, given the pattern of the president's behavior, that is, he speaks to the group, he knows the group is going to the Capitol, he encourages it, and then he, you know, doesn't denounce it. He like what what would the fact pattern what would you need in addition to that fact pattern to worry that the president has some seditious conspiracy uh, liability himself well you know i mean this reminds me of of so many other situations where we're talking about a leader who is instigating violence and i and i don't mean to be again hyperbolic but you know we see this in the terrorism context right we see calls by leaders in terrorist organizations for things to happen. And what do you know? They happen. And so I'm not saying that Donald Trump is a terrorist, but the impact of a leader like him on his followers and the words that he says, he has to know the impact they will have because he they have had that impact in the past. When he talked about liberate Michigan, we had armed groups storming the Capitol in Michigan, right? When we talked about uh, when he mentioned an armed criminal street gang during the first debate and told them to stand by, and I refuse to name them, so I won't, they immediately merchandised it and monetized it. When he retweeted about impeachment, that if he was impeached, it would cause a civil war, an armed uh, militia I won't name said, we're here, we're ready. So he knows the relationship he has with these extremist groups, and he had to know what was going to happen. But beyond that, you know, it starts to be unfathomable to think about a prosecution like that of a of a sitting president. It's just so, you know, these are such extraordinary circumstances. So, David, there's one other major issue that I think is going to become a factor uh, in the next few days. So there have been, as Quinta says, a number of arrests. As Mary described, there is a just a huge array of possible crimes here and a lot of video footage. And the president, unless he is removed or temporarily replaced under the 25th Amendment, has 14 days where he has access to the pardon power. And so I am relatively concerned that one thing you may see is a blanket amnesty kind of pardon for everybody involved. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. I don't see anything to point away from that, Ben. What we've seen with the the president's use of the pardon power recently is he knows, certainly has been told by his advisors, that he has effectively no controls on it. Maybe they've mentioned, don't do it directly for a cash envelope or another bribe, maybe. But other than that, he seems to recognize that he has nearly unlimited power to do it. The more interesting scenario involving the pardons, of course, is if in fact he is removed from power, whether it is by impeachment and removal or by temporary uh, removal from power under the 25th Amendment, Section 4, does Vice President Pence pardon him as president in order to effectively keep the situation from getting worse after January 20th? Um, that's an open question. I think we'll we'll explore 
later if circumstances get there. But the pardon is such a powerful tool that I can't imagine the president would not use it. I mean, he has been out there tweeting, and again, until taken down, tweeting that this is a perfectly understandable reaction, that of course people were going to do this, that he's essentially endorsing the violence, uh, both in advance and in retrospect. If he's doing that, I don't see much reason why he wouldn't at least consider issuing a, a, a pardon uh, for all crimes committed by that class of people for that period of time. Quinta, over the next 48 hours, presumably we will see the completion of the counting of the electoral vote. We will also see whatever disposition we're going to see with respect to how the political system responds to the president's behavior. What are you anticipating the next several days entails? I mean, is it is it a series of prosecutions or is it a, a, a sustained attempt to kind of de-escalate things and re- wait, leave this for the next administration? Is it a series of ritual denunciations of the president's behavior? What happens now? Well, you you really saved the easy question for last, Ben. And for you. <laughs> um, look, I, I had an even harder one for Byman afterwards. <laughs> okay. I, look, I, I have absolutely no idea. I mean, I think that I spent a while yesterday reading through various write-ups from reporters and extremism researchers on what they thought might happen. And everyone was very circumspect about the fact that they didn't know what today would look like. So I don't want to go prognosticating about what tomorrow will hold. I will say I have been interested by the stampede of Trumpist politicians denouncing the invasion of the Capitol. And it will be even more interesting to see how these various politicians, including, by the way, Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, comport themselves once they're back in the Capitol. I don't know if we should be expecting that they're going to continue to uh, object to the counting of the electoral votes or what. But look, if if there's any silver lining here, and it's a pretty faint silver lining, I think it's that it it is unambiguously clear that Cruz and Holly and everyone who was going along with him were playing with fire. And I can only hope first that they put down the matches and second that they're held politically accountable for waving the matches around in the first place. All right. I have two questions to close for Dan. The first is, does this violence go away when Trump leaves office? Which you know, is after all going to happen in 14 days? Uh, yes, God willing. But there's going to be a problem, which is you have large numbers of Americans who were hostile to the political system, yet felt they had a leader, President Trump, who was listening to them and supporting them. And now that same leader is saying peaceful politics don't work, that we have a system that's fundamentally corrupt and broken. And as an example of it, I, your beloved leader, have been falsely kicked out of office. The Senate is illegitimately in the hands of the Democrats who cheated. And this is a massive movement rife with conspiracy theories. And the vast majority of people in it are not going to use violence. But when you have millions of people mobilized, if you say 99% are not going to use violence or even 99.9, that's still a very big remainder. And so it's always very difficult to predict the specifics of when and where and how much violence will occur, but there's certainly going to be a high risk of it going forward. All right. And that's a perfect segue to my last question, which is, all right, so now imagine you're the incoming attorney general, the incoming president, the incoming DHS secretary, uh, the incoming national security advisor, and you've got to de-escalate this situation. Uh, and so you're going to face the question that we've faced a lot of times with, you know, Islamist radical groups and other organizations with or, or movements with violent and nonviolent components. And my question is, what's the strategy? Uh, part of me says, 
I want to prosecute out of these people and you know i want to identify every single person in the video and bring the harshest possible uh righteous criminal case against them and part of me says wait a minute we do have to live in a country with these people after after that and and the day of the event is never the day to figure that out of course but uh, I do have warring instincts about what the right way to think about this movement is and the, and how to handle it. And uh, so I want to close with just asking you, as somebody who's dealt with this question in, you know, in the context of Middle East terrorist movements quite a lot, how should we think about this? What makes this question particularly hard is that the people who use violence or the people who simply broke into the Capitol and you probably didn't even think they were doing anything dramatically wrong, are a reflection of a much bigger political movement. And, you know, unfortunately, as we've talked about in this podcast, a lot of their actions in their eyes are simply they're acting on the rhetoric of political leaders who have said this is an illegitimate election, right? I mean, I'm trying to think of how angry I would be if after the um, election uh, someone said, oh, the Republicans actually won and everyone proceeded. Right. I'd be like, no, that's not what happened. And I think so. I think there's some people who are genuinely believers and genuinely angry and you want to be careful with those people. Um, so, you know, some obvious points, you know, first of all, of course, focus on, you know, those who use the most violence, those who attacked a policeman. You want to focus on ringleaders. So the people who are organizing and the ringleader doesn't have to be the one who led the charge. It could be the ringleader on social media. You want a lot of coordination of the different actors to make sure you can identify people and stomp things out very quickly. Again, I'm sure there's going to be an endless dissection of what happened today, but part of the problem always is in these circumstances is that small things quickly escalate. And when you have effective crowd control, when there are those little flare-ups, they're snuffed out very quickly. So you want to make sure that not only police and intelligence services, but also social media companies bear a lot of responsibility here, um, are able to point to people and individuals who are organizing dangerous activity and to point to hotspots. And that's where you want to concentrate police pressure. And that's where you want to concentrate greater information gathering. And my instinct is to go after that relatively smaller set of people, but then be very lenient on the rest. But as you're saying, the day of is not a great time to do it. My blood is up right now and my stomach is turning. So it's a really bad combination. But I think you have to set some example and you have to make sure that those who challenge democracy will pay a price. But at the same time, alienating a good chunk of America is not a great way to begin a new administration. We're going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, David Priest, Mary McCord, Dan Byman, thank you all for joining us. This has been an emergency edition of the Lawfare Podcast. This is actually tomorrow's, Thursday's Lawfare Podcast. But while we have been talking, our estimable editor, Jen Patya Howell, assures me she will get it up Wednesday evening. So uh, I will just close by saying that the Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the great Zachary Frank of Grote Rodeo. And of course, we are produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music, if there were music, which there probably won't be today, would be performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.